Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am really excited to be talking to Dr. Jacqueline Smeet, who is, if you don't know, she's the chief medical officer at uh, Dutch at, at Precision Analytical, but she's also an expert in fertility. So we're going to be talking about the Dutch assay today or the, the, the various assays that they offer. I'm going to also be mining her for as many pearls as I can in her fertility, in her area of expertise, because I know that we are, it's just, it's, you know, it's a, it's an area of focus that I, I don't think has been adequately um, mined. And so to have an expert in my midst is quite an excitement. So let me give you a little bit of her background. She's a CMO, she's CMO at Precision Analytical. Um, she's a naturopathic physician focused on infertility, reproductive and genitourinary health in addition to her private practice, Hello Fertility. She is a prolific teacher in the field of reproductive endocrinology and hormones and has trained thousands of clinicians on her treatment methodology. Dr. Smeaton has extensive leadership experience in integrative medicine, including as past president for the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, as an ambassador for the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, as and as a board member of the Integrative Health Policy Consortium. Dr. Smeet, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks, Dr. Fitzgerald. I'm so happy to be here. It's always great to be able to connect with you. And I'm I'm glad that you're in the interview. Like I get to just really kind of pick your brain and, and, and you're sitting, you're in the hot seat. We're gonna um, have fun. <laughs> so We've definitely, you know, we have a lot of content on Dutch. And so for anybody who doesn't know, we'll definitely anchor it in our show notes. I've had some great, great conversations over the, the years with the founder of Dutch, um, Mark Damon. And, but we're going to talk a little bit about you with your clinician hat on, how you're using it in practice, but also the methodology, because I know Mark has worked really hard on it. So again, give us an overview for anybody who doesn't know about the Dutch test. Yeah, I'd love to. So Dutch stands for dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. And really the intent of the Dutch test is to really give you the whole hormonal story. Um, and it's really easy because it's an at-home collection with urine. So it, we collect urine from the patient. It's really easy because they utilize these little cards that you pee on. Like, could it be any easier? It's like easier than, you know, an ovulation kit or a pregnancy test. And you let them dry and then you send them in. And from that, we can measure so many different kinds of hormones. It looks at reproductive hormones, also hormone metabolites. Um, it looks at the HPA axis because you can measure cortisol and cortisol metabolites in urine. And then it also adds organic acids to that test. So you can get a lot of additional info on nutrient deficiencies, different markers for inflammation, for oxidative stress, um, and so much more. So it's exciting to be with Precision. I've been there about six months. And the reason why it felt like such a great fit for me is it's a test I used all the time in my own practice. So it's great to kind of get behind the curtain and like see how the Wizard of Oz runs the show and um, gets all that information. And I want to know, as I just said in my, in my announcement that you heard, because I didn't actually tell you that I was going to be like mining you for pearls as much as possible. But whenever you have a thought like around how you're using it in practice and why you're using it in practice, I'd like, I'd love to learn. And I, I want to also say to folks, it's just for, I think it's for dried spots throughout the day. I mean, I've done it plenty of times myself. I should know that, but you know, it's mm -hmm. simple. You're not, you're not carrying a jug around or actually spending the day home because you have to. Yeah. Carry, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. true. Um, all right. So why is this, why do you think this method is better? Like, why did you use it 
or why are you using it in your practice as well? Yeah, so I think the first thing is like ease of collection. So it's really nice because you don't have to have patients do a blood draw. Um, we do still recommend you do it like for women at a certain time in the menstrual cycle. So like the middle of the luteal phase, because that's when you'll catch progesterone at its highest. And it's great to kind of see what's happening with that. But it's a lot more flexible. You can do it on a number of days, like four or five days out of the menstrual cycle. Um, it's really easy. I think another big advantage is like, as I'm sure, you know, and listeners know hormones fluctuate throughout the day. So if you look at like testosterone or, um, estrogen levels, progesterone levels, if you measured them every hour over 24 hours, there would be massive variations, like 40 to 50% variations for some of those hormones. And so when you look at just a single snapshot in serum, it's tough to know if you're truly high or low because you're catching just a minute, right? And so what we've shown is that urine testing, actually the, the spot urine, the four spots, it's been published in peer-reviewed literature. You know, our team published it. It actually matches 24-hour urine collection when it comes to validity without having to carry the jug around all day. So you actually end up with like a blended average of hormonal production through the day instead of just a single time point. And I think that is so much more accurate. Um, the other thing is you get hormone metabolites. So let's talk about estrogen, for example. Not only do you get to see estradiol levels, but you also get to see all the downstream metabolites and some of those are active. So we see reports all the time where the actual hormone looks low, but active metabolites are high. We see this a lot with like PCOS in women. They will have DHEA and testosterone that look pretty normal or even on the low end but then they have certain androgenic metabolites that are very active that are definitely contributing to skin changes, hair changes, et cetera. So when you can see the metabolites too, it just gives you a, the whole story, really the whole hormone story. So really, you know, that's why I've always loved using the Dutch. And I use serum testing as my gold standard in my practice, because in the world of fertility, the literature is based on serum, but I do find that this adds a lot to the whole story. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that it's, you know, and I, I think it's a lot of us use serum just because it is in the literature. And so it just seems like it's something that we have to lean on in the end. And fortunately it's easy to do and it's covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if it's not, it's generally not too crazy pricey, but, uh, but yeah, you know, the, your, your point is well taken. The fact mm -hmm. that you guys did publish on the method demonstrating that it's imperative to a 24 hour is it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. The team's pretty amazing. The research team there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And Mark is invested in that, you know, he's invested in putting the, the science behind what you guys are doing. I appreciate that. Um, let me see. So what are the, what are big reasons people are using the test and how are you using it in your practice? Yeah. So my practice is all like men and cycling women, you know, cause I'm working with couples that are trying to have a baby. And so that's really where my experience comes from is using it in cycling women. Now they also offer like a Dutch cycle map that looks yeah. at nine different time points across the cycle. And so that was always kind of a fun test to run in those cases where you like really didn't know what was going on with the patient's hormonal system because their symptoms were all over the place. Maybe they had signs of high and low estrogens, for example. Um, so I've always used that, but I was actually really shocked when I joined Dutch to learn that the majority of their tests 
are actually for HRT and HRT monitoring um, in postmenopausal women. So it's been really fun to like circle back to that because that hasn't been a big part of my practice since I was in primary care. So it's been like 10 years since I really spent a lot of time there. And really, I do realize just how much the Dutch test makes sense for postmenopausal women and for HRT monitoring in a lot of instances, not all instances. And that's another thing that I loved about their work when I started to look into it is if you asked Mark, like, what should I use Dutch for? He would tell you exactly the times it's good, exactly the times it's not good. And when it's kind of in the middle where it might add value, like testosterone monitoring is one example where the data really shows serum is best. And no one at Dutch would tell you otherwise. They would say, use serum. If you want to see metabolites, you could also add Dutch, but you know, your main information needs to come from serum when it comes to dosing. So they're really straightforward about that, but there's so many instances where urine is better for HRT monitoring. Some of it is like just due to pharmacokinetics. And before you go into the other instances, I just want to say, as you pointed out a minute ago, that PCOS patient that you're going to miss with serum, testosterone and DHEA, you can pick Mm -hmm. up with a metabolite. So it's hugely helpful or, or just looking at how a man's metabolizing his testosterone. He's pushing it towards a more, you know, kind of male pattern baldness, et cetera. You know, he's pushing it towards a more aggressive uh, metabolite pattern. Yeah. You can see DHT levels. You can see whether men are, you know, pushing down that pathway. And a lot of this is dictated by genetics. So it's kind of fun because I say, this is like genetics and epigenetics in action. Like you can do a genetic test and determine what someone's susceptibility is to metabolize down a pathway. But what you can't see is like the nurture impact, right? That's their nature, what's their lifestyle doing. So Dutch actually is showing you the out, the actual output. So when you see things like COMT, you know, having a SNP on COMT that affects methylation, you can actually test whether your therapeutic approaches are working because you can see that methylation step. And we see it improve all the time. Once you address with nutrients, like, you know, you pick up on a SNP, you address it nutritionally and the metabolites improve. So I do like, there's no guesswork. You're just kind of seeing the impact of genetics plus lifestyle. Are, so a lot of the people are using it for HRT and I'm, and, and Mark, I think has told me that over the years, but it is, it, it is interesting that uh, everybody's just really comfortable with this, with mm-hmm. this method. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about estrogen. I, I cut you off at testosterone. Right. So go ahead. Oh, so well, just, you're wanting me to circle back. Yeah. Circle I back to what where I was going to say about estrogen. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, you have me all excited about androgens now. I don't know. <laughs> no, so, but I, the Dutch, yeah. like it gives you so all those metabolites. Like if you look at estrogen levels in a woman and let's say they are slightly elevated, okay, the estradiol levels. If you look at a Dutch test, you can see why they're elevated, not just that they're elevated. And I love Carrie Jones. She used to be the medical director with Dutch good friend, brilliant clinician. She always used the bathtub analogy with, uh, with hormones and metabolites where, you know, you can see the water level in the tub. That's like measuring the estrogen. But if it's really high, let's say that bathtub's overflowing, you have one of two problems. Either your faucet's running too fast, you know, you're making too much or the drain is clogged. Like your production might be just fine, but if the drain is clogged, it's going to build up and overflow. 
and cause a symptomatic picture with that kind of estrogen dominance picture. And the interesting thing is that the approach is really different, right? If you're not metabolizing properly, you know, you don't need to address estrogen production. You need to address the downstream metabolites and kind of keep it flowing. So it gives you a little bit more detail that allows you to take a more targeted approach to care. 100%. Yeah, you can look at the metabolites, how, you know, and, and the quantity of the safe sort of protective metabolites versus the one associated with cancer or increased estrogenic activity. It's right. incredibly useful to do that. Um, in fact, my recent Dutch, so I'm following the program that, that I developed and researched the Younger You program where we're, you know, we're reversing bioage. I don't want to go off in that tangent, but one of the, but it's very much focused on DNA methylation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also a little bit more cautious using B vitamin, using, using high dose B vitamin interventions. And so my recent Dutch, I was thrilled with the fact that my COMT, you know, my, the quantity, I was making such a robust quantity of two methoxy, um, estrogens. I was just thrilled. Like, so this is the protective for anybody who doesn't know mm-hmm. this is, we want, we want a whole bunch, we want an abundant amount of this and we don't want a, a lot of the four hydroxy estrogens. Actually, those are associated with um, uh, damage that can drive cancer. And I had a really nice balance and I was, I was just really, I was pleasantly surprised. Like I trust what I'm doing, but it had been, you know, it'd been a year since I'd ran my previous Dutch. And so it was just really nice to see that the program that we're prescribing for epigenetics actually really has a nice uh, impact on them. Yeah. Congratulations on that. That's always nice to see. Did you see a difference yeah. in the before and after your protocol? You know what? Yes, I did. And I should actually look that up, but I know that I did because it's an area that I routinely have to work on. So when I saw it, when I noted this time, this abundance <laughs> of the two, of the two methaxes, I was, yeah, I was really happy about it, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea. I need to, um, I was going to, I was going to pop it into a lecture slide and I should do that. I should bring those up. So yeah. People always love when they see us share our own lab results. You know, sometimes it's a bit of a walk of shame and other times it's inspiring. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) I was predicting. Yeah. Yeah. It's not always, it's not always a, you know, a victory lap, but I was happy with that. I was validating. Um, So we were talking just the other piece on estrogen, if you want to say anything else about it, was using it for HRT. HRT, right. So So anything else? Yeah, what I was going to say is like another kind of advantage to urine is like if you're taking oral HRT, the pharmacokinetics of different hormones affect the testing and the results. So like if you are looking at oral estrogen, you're going to metabolize that actually pretty quickly in the bloodstream. So depending upon how many hours after administration you take it, you could get a very high result or a very low result. And when we survey and look at what integrative medicine practitioners are doing, oftentimes the, the testing window they're utilizing with the instructions they give their patients, they're really not catching the majority of that estrogen dump really into the system. And so urine, it takes a little bit longer. So you actually can get a little bit better um, picture of that. And we have some nice data, I think I shared with your team a couple of studies that we published in steroids um, at the end of last year that looked at um, estrogen creams and patches and looked at like what happens in urine when you administer those at different doses. And you can see a really nice linear correlation there, which doesn't exist when you look particularly in saliva, which is Mark's, one of Mark's big things is that our industry relies heavily on saliva 
for HRT. And it's pretty controversial. I mean, this is an area that I went into really open-minded because like I said, HRT is not my area of expertise. I didn't get training from the thought leaders on it. My last training on menopause was from Tori Hudson at her menopause boot camp, probably in, I don't know, 2008, right when I was new in practice. Um, and so I really had to go into it with fresh eyes and look at published data, which is always where I tend to turn. And, you know, it actually was surprising to me, the practices that are in place in our industry. And so the fact that a lot of them are really not only unsupported, but refuted in published literature, and we're not adjusting our practices. So that's a big soapbox for Mark. I'm sure he'd love to kind of get on here and talk about that because we really want to make sure, like Mark will be the first one to say, don't use Dutch for X, Y, and Z. And there's even certain forms of hormones that aren't well monitored with a Dutch test, but there are also many that aren't in saliva and we're still doing that. And we're, we're putting dosages usually much lower dosages that we're giving to patients based upon salivary testing because saliva levels tend to be really, really high when people are on, particularly progesterone, which is a very fat soluble vitamin, that we might be missing the opportunity for the patient to get clinical benefit that we're intending for them to get. So we know that's like another humongous story for a different day, but, you know, suffice to say, I think that, you know, as someone who's coming in on the education side at Dutch, we're really motivated to just expose clinicians to what's out there because there actually is a lot of published research out there to just allow people to make the decision for themselves of what they think is best for their practice. But, um, and we will, by the way, folks, link to those studies in the show notes uh, and make sure you have access to uh, what Jacqueline's referenced so far. But what, um, what would you say are the solidly reliable hormones what we can just lean on Dutch for. Um, and, and also, and I think it's, I think I already know the answer to that. It's like basically everything except testosterone. And the other question that I have is, I mean, we're obviously doing something with cortisol using saliva. Um, yes. what is that it as far as you think for reliability? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in hormone naive patients, I think it's great. Like if you're not administering hormones, we really can trust those values. It's when you start to layer on hormone replacement therapy and you're right, androgens are like the biggest testosterone replacement is the most kind of unreliable. Um, when, and it's not that it doesn't add value. Like we actually see a lot of men use it. One of the big reasons why it actually, my husband loves that I always share his health on every podcast. It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't talk about his low testosterone, but um, <laughs> he's been on testosterone replacement therapy for quite a long time. And he was finding that he wasn't feeling that great. He was seeing a medical doctor doing serum testing. And we were ran a Dutch on him. We realized that he was converting so much of that to estrogens. And when we actually applied things to support estrogen detoxification, he didn't change his dose of testosterone, but his symptom improvement went sky high. When we did things like, um, you know, broccoli sprouts and dim and all of the things that help to move estrogens out. So there is still incredible value, especially if you have patients that seem to be unresponsive at doses where you feel like they should definitely be responding. It might be that they're converting to estrogens and high estrogen will mimic low testosterone symptomatically. Um, oh but God. you're right. I think, you know, Dutch really shines also with cortisol um, and cortisol. Actually, we offer a salivary panel for it as well, because 
cortisol is measured very, very well in saliva. It's one of the few hormones where that's a great medium for it. So um, we're not salivary averse in total. We just want to make sure that the data is there to support it. And with reproductive hormones, we think urine is a better medium. Um, any other like key go-to? So in your in your husband, like we see, we definitely see high estrogen, a variety of high estrogen patterns in our in our patients. Not necessarily on testosterone. They could just simply be really inflamed and converting, you know, their aromatase is turned up. And so they're, they're converting their testosterone to estrogen pretty aggressively. And I like the idea of using sprouts and sulforaphane and, um, and, and, and I3C. And what else, what else would you think about just to kind of pick your brain on yeah, that so particular we, pattern? Yeah. So when we see high estrogens, you know, I, the other thing, like you mentioned, inflammation, adiposity will cause high estrogens. Of course, that's like another estrogenic tissue. And in men, it's really active. So they don't have ovaries. So adipose tissue is one of the main places men make, you know, they aromatase um, into estrogens. And so that's another big one. And then environmental toxicity, unfortunately, we have so many compounds that are estrogenic that that can drive that elevated estrogen level as well. So we have to think about where is it coming from and why is it high? And then, like you said, I think looking at those downstream metabolites to make sure things are flowing efficiently when it comes to detoxification. So, but we do see that elevation a lot. Um, and, and sometimes those can have other underlying drivers like poor sleep habits, you know, sleep apnea, we know can cause massive hormonal changes in men. Uh, and so we really have to yeah. kind of dive into that root cause piece to see what's going on for each individual patient. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, but yes, I think um, I think sleep apnea is becoming more appreciated as a driver, but I do think that it's still underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, any good aromatase inhibiting botanicals that you think about? So there are. So there's some that are exciting and fun, like mushrooms. A lot of mushrooms, like white button mushrooms, are great. Collard greens are great. I always look to food first because. If yeah. the more we can get people to live with their genetics is how I would describe it, the better off they are. Um, there's actually a Cabernet Sauvignon grape that's in phase two clinical trials right now as an aromatase inhibitor. So um, I'm really hoping that one pulls through and we can recommend red wine <laughs> for that reason as well. Um, so, I mean, those are the big ones that I think about using is really more from a dietary perspective. You also get some activity from a lot of antioxidants like resveratrol and things like that. So a lot of the antioxidants that you'd recommend actually can support kind of maintaining androgens as androgens when they're supposed to be that way. What are your nice. favorite? Nice. Very cool. Well, I was actually, I think that I would have to say that my, I think what I have seen that the best result in is um, the best results is there's a handful one, going after inflammation, no doubt about it, like a mm-hmm. radical dietary change. So this generally, we're generally seeing in, insulin resistance in the same population. So really cleaning up the diet, dropping down the carbs, maybe do keto for a little while. If you really want to drop, um, you know, lower estrogen, drop it like a stone, you could consider moving into that, but just doing something low glycemic. One of the coolest pathways for me, so beyond this, so thinking about diet, cleaning up inflammation is the fact that we actually make aromatase 
when um, in the arachidonic acid cascade. So mm. we produce all of those pro-inflammatory eicosanoids and then PGE2, PGE2, which is the, you know, the biggest and the baddest of the arachidonic acid prostaglandins, aggressively pro-inflammatory, increases genetic production of aromatase. Mm, it just increases it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So if you, if you think about changing the omega-3-6 ratio, so increasing omega-3s, increasing DHA, EPA, you know, big time, really getting that about 8% in our red blood cell membranes um, so that we're packed there and we drop arachidonic acid, then aromatase is going to be inhibited by that mechanism. We're just not going to be making as many of those pro-inflammatory um, eicosanoids. And then the other thing that I think about is all of the amazing botanicals. We have a, just a litany of beautiful botanicals that will inhibit those eicosanoids and therefore inhibit um, aromatase being produced by PG2. So this is like curcumin and ginger and boswellia and licorice, like all of those beautiful botanicals that we were, you know, taught about in our, in our training, can, we can lean on for this aromatase inhibitory effect. And it's top of mind because I just lectured on this at IFM. So it's just right there. Right. I talk about it every year, fresh off that particular lecture. Yeah. It's so funny because don't you find that no matter how specific the problem, it always ends up winding back to the most basic solutions. And that's why things like yeah. profound lifestyle change dietary change, stress management, good yeah. sleep, kind of fix everything, even when you get to like a very, very specific level of a specific disease process. It's exciting, yes. at, you know, to think that you can make such a big impact with so little tools, really. Yeah. Yeah. Diet, some movement, some sleep, you know, get your omega-3s. Like that is just such a fundamental workhorse intervention, mm -hmm. right? Like who aren't we prescribing fish oil to? Right. Yeah. And that is going to change the whole kind of estrogen dominant picture we see in men, but also in women as well. That's all going to show. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but with omegas, you have to think about like the profound impact they have one as an anti-inflammatory, they're amazing. But then when you think about them as a structural fat, as part of the cell membrane, that takes a little bit more time because you need to have more omega-3s in your body as cells undergo repair and replication. But when cell membranes are built of omega-3 fats instead of the trans fats we all had in our systems in the 80s and 90s, you know, you it's transformational because cell membranes function better, which means communication happens more efficiently and the effects can just be really impactful. Yes, yes it is a good, and it is a good point. You know, again, being hot off this lecture, I can say that it's about a three month turnaround where you can see, really see the clinical impact of fatty mm -hmm. acids, of, of omega-3 fatty acids, that it's not, it isn't an overnight, like for right. pain, you can't take two omega-3s and then call your doctor in the morning. It's not going to work. You do. It's a commitment. Right. That's Yay. what is for though. That's what, <laughs> what? what curcumin is for. Yeah. Curcumin right. well, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, that was a fun divergence. So everybody, you got, you have a good action plans for your estrogen dominant. Oh, and I want to just underscore what you said on that topic is, is, is the role of toxins, the role mm -hmm. of xenoestrogens massive, just massive, massive. So yeah. yeah, that has to be, that has to be considered in there as well. Cool. Nice divergence. Um, all right. So let's talk about HPA access evaluation and how providers can get a look using the Dutch 
um, and talk about going beyond diurnal curve. And then of course, talk about your own thoughts around it, using it in clinical practice. And maybe, you know, if you have any case awesome. thoughts. So this is another area that like, since I've joined Dutch, my knowledge base has gone through the roof. You know, I was really trained looking at the diurnal curve of cortisol and addressing patients' needs based upon that. But the Dutch test offers not just that look, but actually two other really important pieces to the story that I think are underutilized clinically. So if you're a practitioner and you're listening today and you work with a lot of patients with adrenal dysfunction, quote unquote, or HPA axis dysfunction, as we call it, if you're looking at the diurnal curve, that's the place to start learning. Like, are they making it in the right pattern where it should kind of spike in the morning and then come down through the afternoon, be relatively low through the afternoon and evening. Then you can gain a lot when you see, okay, are they too high or too low in the morning? Or do they have that flipped curve where they're like lower in the morning and then they spike in the afternoon? I had a patient actually recently that looked like that. And when I was reviewing their results, I said, you know, is our afternoons like really stressful for you? it would work. And they were like, no, but actually that day when I was collecting, I had to go in for the uh, vitamin IV. This is a patient, a fertility patient. It was the husband. And he said they couldn't find my um, vein and it yeah. took them like six or seven tries. And I was like near tears, stressed out. And I was like, okay, that's what we're seeing on your test. Like situation, wow. anxiety, and stress. It's really sensitive. And we could see his cortisol level, like skyrocketing. Um, so that's kind of the first piece to look at. And then you might see patients who are generally high or generally low on that cortisol curve or that classic, like flat lines patient where it doesn't look like they're producing much. So let's fast forward to kind of the next thing that you can look at, which is cortisol metabolites. Do you take a look at that a lot in depth on the Dutch test? Um, well, you know what? I was just, funny as you were, as you said that I was just writing down to talk to you about thyroid and, and influence yeah. there. So, I mean, I, 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 I do, and I, yeah, I do look at it. So go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So the Dutch test also, because it's urine, you, we can measure the metabolites of cortisol as well. And when you compare that to the active metabolites that are shown on the curve, sometimes there's a mismatch, like in a perfect world, you would see, and we show them as these little dials, the arrows would point in the same direction. Like the amount that you're manufacturing, we're also measuring in your urine and it's being excreted and metabolized. But what can happen sometimes is there's a mismatch where, for example, the flatlined patient, it's going to show active cortisol very low. That dial would be pointed kind of to the left on low. But I recently saw one of my patients like that and the metabolites were through the roof. They were super, super high. So then you're like, okay, well, what's going on? Because you're, if I looked just at that diurnal curve, it would look like their adrenals aren't producing a lot of cortisol. That would be what you would assume from that. But if you know enough about metabolism and you see the metabolites are extremely high, you realize, no, they're dumping so much into their urine, but like, look how much they're dumping. Their adrenal glands are overproducing cortisol to try to keep up, but it's all getting kind of metabolized out quickly. And from that, you can actually tell a lot. We see a lot of like hyperthyroidism, which is what was going on with this patient, undiagnosed hyperthyroidism or anything else that affects metabolism. So in that particular patient, they didn't have any hyperthyroid symptoms, but when we saw that cortisol mismatch of metabolites, they got tested and diagnosed with graves, right? So 
that was a really interesting case to see that the metabolites can add so much to the picture. Likewise, you might have patients that look normal, um, but their metabolites are super low and they feel tons of anxiety and tons of stress and they're really on edge. And when you look at the curve, you're like, why do they feel so stressed out? This looks okay. But then you see that the cortisol metabolites are not exiting the urine and they're sticking around and really causing that patient to feel like, you know, they're in that fight or flight mode. So the metabolites can add a really interesting element to the curve. And you can actually see if somebody has just, if somebody has, is using exogenous steroids, in which case, obviously we wouldn't want them to collect, or if somebody has finished and started their testing before too soon, you can also see like a flat line. You can see really abnormal cortisol output. With the yeah, you can. Like yeah, steroid. I had a, a patient actually last week with ulcerative colitis who's on budenicide and trying to conceive when we ran the test, she was like flatlined. And it was really because of suppression due to the budenicide, which I'd always known about that for like kind of more traditional um, steroids, but I wasn't sure, you know, what would be happening with that. But like one of the members of the team kind of talked to me through, she had some HPA axis dysfunction also, but then also steroidal suppression. So, but that's real. I mean, the steroidal suppression also means that she's not got a lot of cortisol around to provide some of the anti-inflammatory benefits. And so it's not that the results are not valid. In fact, budenicide, like she's going to be on that the rest of her life. She's on it right now while she's trying to conceive. So it was helpful to see her HPA axis picture on steroids because that's what I'm treating. That's who I'm working with. Um, but you're right. We do see like instances where it looks really odd and people will call us and it's like, well, did you use any like anti-itch cream, you know, or like, did you have bug bites and use any kind of steroid can actually cause a change in those results. So you've got to be cautious. And we instruct patients to avoid that when they're doing the testing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if they're not, obviously they need to go for a, a serious workup and mm-hmm. looking, looking at what's, what's going on there with their adrenal output. Yep. If, you, Definitely. if you pick that up, if you pick that up and there is no history of steroids uh, in yeah. any form. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which we have. I mean, I, th- I, would, I would imagine any clinician using, using the Dutch has seen those patterns that mm-hmm. require a further workup. Um, so I love the cortisol awakening response. I mean, it's that just was, been a I was game hoping changer. To bring that up. Yeah, yep. I love it. I mean, it's just was such a game changing piece of information. And so, yeah, the diurnal output is is valuable. Um, and you know, you're thinking about it with the with the with the pieces that you've just brought up. But yeah, the cortisol awakening response is just. I think it's a game changing um, tool in our practice. It totally is. And I love how much published data is coming out on the car. Um, yeah. So cortisol awakening response refers to what happens to cortisol, like literally immediate upon, immediately upon awakening in the first hour. And so we have two kind of main tests that we run. The Dutch complete is urine only. The Dutch plus adds the car to the HPA axis fees and it requires saliva because it's really hard to ask people to pee three times in the first hour. And also you know, what you see in urine is actually like hours old because it has to go through metabolism and and be filtered by your kidneys to get in the urine. Saliva is more instantaneous change. So um, we actually change the diurnal curve to be measured via saliva and you still get metabolites in urine. But with that, you're able to get the immediate morning sampling. And what we found is it actually is kind of like a mini stress test on the body, similar to ACTH simulation that they would do in a of a hospital setting to measure someone's 
adrenal output. And you can actually see, and there's great data correlated to all kinds of diseases based upon that mini stress test. So I also like will, I only run those Dutch pluses now because the car I think is so valuable. And I actually, we're doing um, some data mining right now with our research team to take a look at what percentage of the results that we put out that have a mismatch in the, what the car shows and what the diurnal curve shows, because we'd like to be able to understand like if people are doing just the complete and getting the diurnal curve, are they missing HPA axis dysfunction in their patients that they might've picked up on had they also done a car. So stay tuned. Like we're hoping to actually work on that and get that published this year. Um, But I think that's an area that's not well understood that could really change the game and how we evaluate patients for HPA axis function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. what so so a lot of what what are what diseases are associated with FLMRs? Just give me some think, of the some of the top. Yeah, ones. I think most I think there was actually one on all cause mortality recently that got published. I don't have that data like right on my desk, but um, you know, a, a different mood disorders. You know, there's been a lot. I, I unfortunately don't have that right in front of me to go through that list with you. Okay, but there've been quite a number cardiovascular disease. Yeah, cardiovascular disease is another one. So it's certainly an area where I think that research is really developing and expanding. Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, well, what we can do, because I know that um, there are people listening who who want that, maybe if you can, you or somebody on your team can give us a little bibliography, we'll put it on the show notes. Or yeah, we can we'd love to send it provide out. some additional info for you guys to dive into that as you yeah. learn more about the car. Yeah, but yeah, I love it. I just, I think it's an incredibly useful and, you know, better, I think better studied than the, mm-hmm. the four point. Um, okay. What else do we have here? We've talked about some of your publications, anything you want to add? I mean, you got, it looks like you have, well, we've got three that we're going to put in our show notes. So we've got the two looking at estrogen using dried urine, using the Dutch. And then we've got just the validation that the four point Dutch collection is you know, comparative to a 24 hour specimen collection, which is mm-hmm. awesome. We have those three studies that we'll, we'll again, park on our show notes. Um, and then you've got this new one, the data dive that you guys are doing, which is awesome. That sounds really yeah. cool. And you have some clinical information as well. Will you map the clinical information to the uh, diurnal and car uh, yeah. data dive? And we can share some more like resources with you too. Like this is just yeah. a sampling of the studies. They've you know, the team's published a lot and now we're growing our research team. We've got a data scientist, he's a pharmacist, he's brilliant. Um, we're about to open up a second position on that team for another person to be doing more writing because we've got so much data and it just takes a long time to write, to actually like literally write the papers. Yes. Um, we have another one that's intended to go for submission next week that actually compares estrogen delivered by cream patch and gel um, that we can show kind of how that gets traced in urine and the validity of it and kind of where we see, um, successfully treated women on HRT fall within the Dutch test, which it's not, this is not like a diagnostic, you know, um, diagnostic approach, but what we tend to see is women feel best when their estrogen levels fall between the postmenopausal range and the luteal range for a cycling woman. because 
that's actually a really big deal is that if you look at a lot of labs, salivary or urine, and you look at their reference ranges, one big challenge for me as a clinician is that when I was looking for a lab, those reference ranges overlap for a lot of labs. And so if a woman falls in that overlap, you're like, okay, well, are you like low for a psych, you know, especially if she's perimenopausal, you're like, are you low? Are you high? You know, you could be either like, it doesn't make any sense, but in Dutch, there's a gap, you know, there's a gap between the two. That's very solid. And what we find is that those, when we look at clinically effective dosage ranges for HRT, we see women kind of fall in that range. So kind of cool that we can share that information. So practitioners can aim for that, but that'll be covered in this study, which is actually kind of cool. The other thing about it is it's one of the first studies to be published on compounded um, biased creams. There's not a lot of data on the efficacy of compounded medications for HRT. There's like a big research gap there. So we're excited to be able to add a little bit to the literature. When um, is that coming? And so that's gone through peer review? It's just- No, we're about to submit it. You're we're about, about to submit it. it. Oh, okay. Um, so it's for peer be. review. Okay. Um, so usually that takes a couple months once you submit, get feedback, make edits, and then yeah. submit the final. So probably um, middle of 2023, but we've got a lot on the plate with research and publication. I just want, before you go hold that for a second, I just, I, I, I was just hoping that I happened to have a Dutch panel on my, on my desktop open that I could pop up that piece of information you, you, you guys are going to be presenting in this, in this study where the sweet spot is in your data set of, of estrogen. People are going to be curious. Can we do and we, we could put a Dutch sample report so they can look at exactly what you've just Absolutely. said. And they can just, all right, so we'll put, it, we'll, we'll put a sample report for anybody who doesn't have a Dutch test handy. I'm gonna open mine after, follow somebody's from my, um, from my clinic here and just take a look at it. But just so you can look at the reference range that Dr. Smeaton just walked us through and, and get an idea of that you know, while we wait for the paper to come out. And what else are you guys doing? Oh, I mean, like right now, we also have a subset of a few hundred patients that have done a specific DNA test and a Dutch test. And so we are also doing some, um, in like some looks at what SNPs are associated with what types of results on the Dutch test. So again, like we just got that data. It's a humongous file. It's going to take us a while to go through that, but we really are very interested in providing more information that can be helpful to clinicians. You know, we've done a lot of the data validation for the testing, and we feel excited to move on to new things that can be really applied clinically and answer questions that are just unanswered that we use our best educated guesses on to solve clinically. We are hoping we can put some data behind it. I'm so interested to see what you guys come up with. Like, how relevant is COMT? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we certainly see COMT functioning fabulously or appearing not to be, but you know, there could be other pieces involved. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. It is one of the better researched, I think, since, um, as far as being clinically relevant, but yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be, I'll be really curious to see what you guys find there. Um, anything else you want to add? Any other research things? I'm, I'm really excited to hear how yeah. much is going on over there. There's a lot. I don't think so. I mean, we have a research page on our website. So if you want to see some of the older stuff, especially, um, you can check that out and yeah, we'll link in the show notes, show notes to our newest publications for anyone listening. That's more curious about estrogen, HRT and, and what it looks like in the urine. Okay, perfect. 
Um, yeah, we'll pop a link up onto the resource if, if you want to, but you can actually listen to some really deep dives with Mark and I over the years and we'll put those links up as well. I'm going to so have to take those old podcasts up too. That sounds fun. We were talking about creatinine. We were talking about it earlier. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit about creatinine. Did he, I think maybe he had published on it something. I don't, I, we yeah. spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, creatinine is what we use to just make sure the, the urine specimen are reliable and an individual is generating an adequate concentration of the, of the hormones. We use a creatinine. Yeah. And he, they, we have a special method at Dutch that we utilize that allows us to get, um, like oftentimes what you find is more dilute urine means lower levels of hormone. And then the instruments have a tough time being precise and that you can get like 30 or 40% variation in your results. If you retest and retest and retest, you know, that wouldn't meet our standards for it to be data we'd give to a clinician. So they actually developed a different method that, um, I don't know how much I can give away. It's like kind of a secret, it's like insider secret, but it helps to normalize the concentration that runs through the machine so that we can actually produce a more accurate result, even at really low levels of hormones. So that's something that is like, you could nerd out. Like you said, you talked for six hours on creatinine. You talk to someone in the lab, they will tell you, they could talk to you for hours on these methods and all the testing. And like, thank goodness for people like that, because I'm like a typical clinician where I'm like, I just want to make sure the data is right. But if you tell me it's right, I'm going to pretty much just believe you. <laughs> you know, if you can show me a validation study, awesome. That's even better. But I don't want to have to read, you know, I don't want to have to like learn about creatinine for six hours. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. It was, although, although I, I do enjoy a good conversation. I know. Lab background. <laughs> All right. So, but you were going to, we were going to pick your clinician brain. And so in our final, in our final minutes together, I just wanted right. to take some time to talk about cases. And I really wanted to lean on some of the interesting fertility work that you've done and some pearls. Like, I know we're going to, we're going to fold it into what you might be seeing on the Dutch, but maybe, you know, just, you know, guide us. Grab yeah. Your- grab your phone or your pens and your, and your paper people, but like, yeah. Well, let me just give you like the maybe one minute fertility overview. Like if you're new to treating patients with fertility, like one of the reasons why I love working with couples when they're trying to get pregnant, number one, they are so committed to your protocols. So that is wonderful because your compliance level is going to be really high and you can get success in really difficult cases because patients are just so dedicated to your plan. But the second piece is that it is whole person medicine. So although it's a specialty, it's not a specialty because so many things have to be right in order for couples to conceive. Um, So some of the things I think about, one is like that younger you approach, you know, biological aging is so real. And when it comes to fertility, that's the first area that we see the effects of biological aging. In fact, I'm working on a talk right now for AAMP this summer. Um, where I'm going to be speaking on male fertility as the canary in the coal mine, because there's so much data showing that men with infertility have higher disease rates than men who are fertile. It's like a marker for biological aging that predisposes them to metabolic syndrome, heart disease, so many other conditions. So you have to think about that younger you approach when it comes to fertility. And a lot of the same theories apply from that like healthy living kind of anti-aging world where you have to have healthy mitochondria. The cells with the most mitochondria in the body are reproductive cells, not cardiovascular. They're really mitochondrial dependent. It's oxidative stress. 
right? It's omega-3 status. Um, it is gut health and microbiome. This is like in the last three years, literally erupting the industry. I don't know if anyone, like I went to school, you know, 15 plus ish years ago, that's close enough. Um, and we learned that the womb was sterile, right? That the microbiome was established in a baby during vaginal delivery. We were so wrong. There is a microbiome in meconium, which means that there's a microbiome inside the baby's gut while they're in the womb, which means that develops from the placenta and actually mom's oral microbiome. We know there's a microbiome within the uterus and certain microorganisms, urea plasma is the worst, even at really low levels can cause infertility and recurrent miscarriage. Gut microbiome impacts fertility. There's so much to it. So all the things that you think about for like whole person health apply in a really specific way for fertility patients too. So you really have to do that whole person approach. And then of course, hormonal health is a big piece of it. And that's where um, the Dutch comes in for me as such a useful tool because Dutch is an overview of hormonal health, but on the oats, which we didn't talk about, talk much about today, I feel like they're kind of the, like the, the gift that's stuck under the Christmas tree that a lot of people forget is there, right? They like don't notice it's there. There are oats in there that are different markers for nutrients. So you can start to pick up on nutrient sufficiency patterns. There's a marker for inflammation on our oat panel. Um, 80HDG is on there, which is a marker for oxidative stress. So as kind of a bonus, I'm starting to get a view of like some of those underlying functional patterns that might be existing for a patient as a bonus when I'm looking at their hormone levels. That's awesome. And that's organic acids, folks, if you don't know the OAT acronym. So get there. <laughs> I, re I remember when Mark was developing those and you guys were working on them and picking them out. And I think you've got really good, really good, really evidence-informed markers like mm -hmm. 802H2DG is, is a fabulous well, well-studied marker of oxidative stress. And then yeah, you have, I think you have methylmonic acid and do it for methylmethylglutamate as well. So B12, that's that's a marker for B12 and, and folate, yeah. right? You like chimurinate and quinolinate. Like there, we're very picky about what organic acids we'll put on the test because there's very extensive panels available, but a lot of them um, encourage clinicians to draw conclusions that are more theoretical that we won't include on the test until there's some studies that actually back up the clinical utility of that as a marker. So we're a little slower to add them on and that's intentional. Um, we just want to make sure we're really giving the best information possible. You said something about urea. I was actually just kind of trying to look it up while you were, while you were talking. Oh, urea plasma. Yeah. And is that, I mean, are you, is, is that a deriger investigation for you and your fertility patients? It started to become something that I'm screening for. Like I see a lot of unexplained infertility, a lot of recurrent miscarriage or like failed transfers where couples have embryos that have been genetically tested and they know they're normal, but they're not transferring. And there's actually a test that's started to move in the conventional space called an Emma Alice, just like the women's names. And it actually, it's an endometrial biopsy where they do, um, they look for probiotic microbiome organisms and infectious organisms in the endometrial lining. So one of them, you know, is, and the Emma is the beneficial and the Alice is the pathogenic organisms. And it's really been transformative. I mean, treating even very low level pathogens. Cause if you imagine if you have a low grade infect infection, you've got inflammation in the uterus and pregnancy yeah. requires 
a couple things. One is great blood flow. We didn't talk about that before, but the whole nitric oxide world is very relevant to fertility as well. So you need really good like microcirculation, and then you also need inflammation to be really perfectly balanced in order for mom's immune system to like, you know, be able to not recognize or not attack a pregnancy, which is foreign tissue. So really there's so much to it that that microbiome piece is like huge. And it's an area that I'm like loving learning more about because there's more and more paper every month coming out on it. Yeah. I, I know this is like beyond the scope of this conversation, but there's the, there's sort of the four types, like a Brazilian group. Are you, you must be aware of their, Mm -hmm. their work looking at the specific microbiome types associated with infertility. Are these, are these sort of pro-inflammatory sub-infections? Yeah, they're really, they don't disclose. I don't know a lot of the details of it. That's microgenesis, I think that you're talking about. And they have a system and there's like one practitioner, Robin Rose, who's a great doc, um, Dutch customer, like functional medicine doc that does a lot on that. I don't know their methods specifically, but yeah, they actually, I think there's about 64 or 65 like types of microbiome that they've analyzed and there's customized protocols and treatment plans I think that involve antibiotics and antimicrobial herbs and lifestyle um, to address each of those. And they have, I just watched a webinar that they gave a couple of weeks ago. They have like a 75% success rate in couples that were previously infertile. Um, And so that's like really remarkable, especially when you think about functional medicine, having that kind of impact because fixing the microbiome, of course, is such a fundamental piece of what we do um, that I I think it's probably going to grow to be a bigger or more well understood cause of infertility in the next five to 10 years. Oh, interesting. Wow. Okay. All right. And are they publishing on their, on their work? I've not found any publications. They might have some, but like I said, I like just have started to look and I think they're trying to keep it kind of proprietary. They are. Yeah. As far as their approaches go. Yeah. Yeah. It is proprietary. Hence my, um, pulling the thread here in this conversation. That's what I found. And mm-hmm. my curiosity is peaked, but I obviously have limited understanding since I thought there were four types. And you're telling me yeah. there's 64 types. Um, well, I want to bring you back on for uh, a podcast, another podcast where we'll just really dive into the infertility work. If you're, if you're interested in doing that, I would love to with your brain. Yeah, this is just, this is great. This is interesting. And then, you know, we can chat about how you're using the Dutch in that, but just going well beyond this, maybe after you do your, a and P talk, we can circle back and do a little, a, do, a podcast version of it. If you're yeah, that'd be great. All right. All right. So we're closing anything else you want to add? This has just been, this has really been a great conversation. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, stay tuned for a lot more and we'll make sure we pack our show notes with all of the content that we've talked about. Thanks so much.